Dave Berge, are we already this deep into season four? It's hard to believe, but we are. <laughs> Where this is episode two of season four, which, as if you've listened to our show at all, you know, is completely arbitrary. <laughs> yes, we have not done. I think some people. Well, they've done four hundred and two of these. No, no, we're using that uh, snooty Hollywood uh, measurement for the episodes. Redo like, twenty-four episode season. Yeah, twenty-four. We we got picked up for the for the back end on season one. <laughs> we did another pilot for the other season. So yeah. Anyway, this is like trees walking. This is the podcast where we talk about the most important issues of life. We do it from a Christian perspective, but we welcome and invite all comers to share in the conversation about the things that matter to all of us. I did that pretty good on That's it, on the fly. Very good, strong. So, and uh, and I think regardless of one's uh, f- uh, faith perspective, um, Christian or not, believer or not, uh, lapsed or not, whatever. Uh, when you think about you know Christian scripture, the Bible, the Old and New Testament, uh, that even as mere cultural, you know, like artifacts of our culture or influences on our culture, you know, being knowledgeable about uh, Christian scripture and how Christians think about it is incredibly invaluable and important for you to be a, uh, you know, functioning citizen in our uh, pluralistic democracy. So we know that is your desire to be a functioning citizen. We know you each individually. (laughs) No, we, uh, we love talking about these things because they matter to us all. And you may have a completely different perspective on it, but we're fine with that. We meet those people every day. And we, as Christians who have our own beliefs, love talking about those things. A lot of people don't. We mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and we're going to do that today. And why don't you introduce this? this so, is yes. the second part. Part two of our interview with uh, the Reverend Doctor. He is the Reverend Doctor. Uh, Brent Astron, uh, distinguished, if only in my heart, uh, professor of, uh, of Old Testament at Emory, the Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. And so uh, Brent uh, is a, a very good communicator. Um, about this and very passionate about this particular topic uh, uh, about the um, the death the death or the 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 sorry state of the Old Testament. He's talking particularly not just within the culture but with within the church itself. Um, why it why it's dying and what's what can we do about it? And so here we get definitely much more into the what can we do about it part, which is is so interesting. But uh, but Brent makes an uh, an incredibly compelling case as to why you know the Old Testament is not something that Christians shouldn't welcome its death, but instead we should lament it and do everything that we can to uh, to. N- Take draw the life that it has uh, for us from it, and uh, and at our own peril, our own risk, our own detriment, we we ignore it, or even uh, in some perverse way celebrate uh, not having to deal with it. So no, 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 we need it as much as a fish needs water, yeah, as much I, as I a human it, needs air. Well, listening to uh, and by the way, if you just came upon this episode, I think we go strongly recommend. I don't yeah. think you'll. I mean, obviously, we don't discourage you from doing it, but strongly encourage you to listen to uh, episode one. But as I was listening to the conversation, um, because this is between uh, uh, Dave and the distinguished professor, and I was just running the boards. I was running the ones and zero. No, what is it called? I don't know. I was thinking of that phrase that is often said about the uh, about the Trinity that it is not a problem. The Trinity is not a problem. It's a solution. And I think that that's kind of, I, I was thinking about that, about the Old Testament. Like, why does everyone think that it's, 
a problem. You think of those, and he speaks about it explicitly, especially at the very end, of the rich promises that are just at his fingertips about the, the Old Testament. And he doesn't deny that there are issues that need to be studied like anything. When you're, ta- when you're trying to confront anything that is huge and that matters, you have to invest in it, and, uh, and then you will find the richness within. So it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful uh, discussion between the pastor and the professor. And in a very timely fashion, because uh, I'm sure this episode's going to come out after Halloween in real time, I give a Halloween costume suggestion. So you'll get that maybe for next year. You can store I think that one be, in your closet. You know, uh, what was it, the Frozen characters? Oh, say goodbye <laughs> to them. There's a new character in town. <laughs> Everyone's going to be going. <laughs> I would love it. It would be. I'd be a little scared to see the sexy version of this costume. Oh, don't even bring that up. <laughs> All, right. All right, let's uh, let's get right into it. Uh, this is uh, part two of the interview with uh, the distinguished professor. All right, Brent, you take it from here. So this is yeah. So this leads me to uh, uh, the part of the interview where I I do want to hear your sort of thirty thousand foot view of your proposal because your diagnosis is that. Um, you know, Andy Stanley, he is a really, really prominent, helpful example of a, you know, disease that has, um, you know, been festering in the church for a long time, where are the Old Testament in the life of the Christian church and in the life of uh, individual Christians um, has, you know, it, you, you, you a diagnose that it's dying. Um, and so I just wonder very briefly if you could say why you think um, it's dying, or what's the evidence that it's dying? And then, you know, we. I'm also very, very interested in your, uh, not just your diagnosis, but what are a couple points of your proposal of how do we, um, how do we recover or cure um, this illness, uh, uh, this sickness unto death, one might say. Right. Well, I think it's dying in part because of people like Andy Stanley. <laughs> I mean, this is sort of an, uh, just a further chapter in the case. I mean, you know, someone tweeted at me. Who knows? It might have been you, Dave. You know, and uh, Brad Strong. You know, the Old Testament is dying, and Andy. Stanley. I, did, I believe I did tweet that at you. I did at you for that because I just thought I thought of this. I thought of this when he when he was saying this stuff. Right, right, and again, he's not alone. You know, I mean, I grew up hearing this stuff occasionally from the pulpit in my own home church, and it, it's and it's extensive. So Marcion got excommunicated. Marcion got condemned as a heretic. The early church said in the second century already, not the 20th century where supposedly we've officially now disengaged ourselves. Um, Already in the second century church said, no, thank you. We've considered the possibility and we realize it's not correct. And they rejected it. But Marcion, you know, he didn't die even after he died. I mean, he was an effective preacher. And guess what? He encouraged Bible study among his flock. And his followers were very ascetic, meaning, among other things, that they were not supposed to engage in sexual intercourse, which means the only way those those churches survived, and they survived for several centuries, was through basically what? Sheep stealing, right? Yep. Because Marcion's work, his system doesn't make sense outside of Christianity. And even though the Marcionite churches eventually faded away, you know, Marcion's ghost, as I say, is still with us. So this is uh, one example of the Old Testament's decline. Um, another example is, is things like 
the relative lack of use of the Old Testament in Christian worship, um, in sermons and in songs, and even in the in the treatment of the lectionary, if a church uses the lectionary, all these are are outlined in my my book as a kind of initial um, tests of the patient that is the sick Old Testament, um, and. Then I go on to to uh, engage three further and more problematic signs of morbidity. One one being the new atheist, another being Marcion and his more recent um, and uh, you know descendants, and finally the prosperity gospel, um, which is another instance of of biblical decline in my humble opinion. So these are these these I, I do equivalent of basically seven tests of the Old Testament. And in each case, the Old Testament comes out looking very, very sick. And some of that sickness has to be laid at the door of those responsible for the education and leadership of the church. That is to say, clergy and Sunday school teachers and parents with their children. And and I'm looking in the mirror, well, yeah. not literally, <laughs> and, you know, seminary professors who are on who are being unhelpful and thinking about the integration of the testaments and and the place of the old testament in christian faith and practice and so on and so forth so there's a lot of people to blame but it's happening and this is just another example and in my mind it's a sad example right because stanley has immense influence um again far greater influence than i will ever have and also you know i want to say a good person who's done a lot of great work for the kingdom of god right so this is not a kind of ad hominem attack uh, against him or other people like him. Um, quite to the contrary, I'm very amazed and and in awe and quite um, thankful for the work these people have done for the sake of God's kingdom and for the church. But even good people can get things wrong a little bit uh, every now and then. <laughs> I, we we may see that throughout church history. You know that that great great people, you know, get some stuff wrong or do some bad things. Yeah, and you know what? By the way, I got to say this in that regard, Dave. This is a good point. He, uh, you know, a couple points in his in his uh, rhetoric, and and let's face it, Andy's a great communicator, right? And yeah, so one of the best. And boiling things down and and simplifying complex arguments. This is something that that good speakers do, but of course, it's it's not the kind of thing that professors do, right? We like to belabor the obvious and think points. But at one point, um, or more than one point, I've seen this a couple times in things he's written. Andy wants to to blame things that have that have happened in the in the Christian church that are that are bad on the Old Testament, you know, as if these things only happen because of the quote unquote mixture of the Old Covenant and New Covenant. Mm -hmm. This is just again not true. You, you know, you look at the history of Christianity. Um, you know, the church is capable of wonderful things and horrific things, and they didn't need the Old Testament to do it. It's called sin, you know, right, right. and to blame it on the Old Testament, you know, that, that Christian pogroms against Jews are because of the Old Testament. Give me a break. Right. More the result of Christian ignorance of the Old Testament and of the deep relationship, including the existential theological relationship between the church and the synagogue. So Marcion's, you know, one of his ugly uh, descendants in the 20th century was a, was a church historian named Adolf von Harnack who wrote between the two world, world wars in Germany that Marcion was right and that the Christian church 
should get rid of the Old Testament. I mean, in Germany, between the two world wars, I mean, it's like you can't be any more anti-Semitic, mm-hmm. you know? And so the death of the Old Testament in that example, the Marcionite tendencies of von Harnack, and he wasn't alone, this ends up to, to being the death of the Old Testament. But, but more than that, the death of Jews, millions of Jews. And Doris Bergen has pointed out in her work, Twisted Cross, that the Nazis were systematic in their elimination of the Old Testament from the church. First, you couldn't preach from the Old Testament in the pulpit. Then you couldn't hear it read in the pulpit. And finally, you couldn't sing any songs related to the Old Testament. And so here comes Christians into church and they don't sing any more big song, you know, songs based on the Old Testament. They don't hear it read in the liturgy and they don't hear it preached. And suddenly they think, what do you know? 20 centuries later, the church is quote unquote officially disengaged from the Old Testament. And I don't have to care when the Nazis come in the middle of the night and take off my neighbor into some place and put him on a train. He was a nice Jewish doctor, but I just don't care because I don't have that as part of my, my vocabulary of faith anymore, even though the New Testament says I should over and over and over again. That's a, yeah, very unfortunate, you know. Uh, potential consequence of unhitching oneself from the uh, from the Old Testament as well. Those, you know, those people who still live according to those old customs and laws, and they haven't gotten the platinum rule yet, you know, um, right. that, that their book right. isn't just a problem, but their continuing presence and existence um, and prominence is a problem too. Exactly. It's, it's just, it's so close, and I don't know if he gets it, so perilously close to full-on anti-Semitism. Um, and again, you just, you can't have it both ways. Oh, the Old Testament is the word of God and, and Moses and Joshua are examples of faith. But no, it's not an example for us in moral conduct at all. As if faith and moral conduct don't go together, for heaven's sake. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or, you know, you, know you, you, you can't have the promises of God and then say, oh, God's established Christ on better promises. No, no, because the New Testament says the promises that Christ is established on are those of the Old Testament. I mean, Paul says, I've been reading Acts lately in, in my daily devotions, and it's, it's just amazing how Acts says, I hadn't really noticed it before, but maybe because I knew our podcast was coming up, I started noticing it. You know, Paul says repeatedly at the end of Acts, you know, I'm on trial for hope in God's promises made to Israel. This is chapter 26, or in 24, he says, I believe everything in the law and the prophets, and again, in 28, he says he's, he's been in prison because of his hope in God's promises. And the end of his final statement in Acts is to quote Isaiah 6 at, 6 at people, you know. So this unhitching business is just, again, it couldn't be more wrong, in my opinion. I'll put on my, I'll channel Andy Stanley right now, and he would say, well, yes, Brent, okay, but that's, he, Paul is talking, you know, to, that's him talking to a Jewish audience. So, of course, if he's talking to Jewish people, he's going to use scriptures which connect with them, you know, culturally, religiously. But we see in, you know, Paul on Mars Hill that he doesn't make any use of the Old Testament. And uh, we see at the Jerusalem councils at Acts 15, uh, you know, where they don't make Gentile, you know, Gentile people are not told that they have to obey the law. And so, see, 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 even in the history of early Christianity, there's one way of talking to Jewish people, and there's a whole other way of talking to Gentile people, uh, and therefore we need to kind of, we don't need to bring this Old Testament stories along with us, because even in the New Testament we see, um, you know, Christians using, and in Acts we see Christians unhitching themselves from that to reach that culture with the message of Christ. 
Right, which sounds so good if it weren't so wrong. You know? <laughs> I mean, again, let's look at Paul's letters to Gentile churches. And what does he do? He talks extensively about all these things. I mean, in Galatians and in Romans, he's talking about Abraham and circumcision and covenant and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael. And, and uh, in Romans, let's talk about Romans 15, 4 for a second. This is one of these ones where, where uh, you get a kind of comment and, from, the, from Paul where he says, uh, you know, these things were written for our instruction. He's talking about stories from the Old Testament. Um, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Okay, and I think Stanley would say, yeah, for our instruction, I guess to never do again or listen. <laughs> <laughs> but then Paul goes on, so that by steadfastness, and get this, by the encouragement of the scriptures, not by its negativity or all its badness, but by the encouragement of the scriptures, and that, that language is the Old Testament, right? The graphe, we might have hope. We might have hope. First uh, Corinthians ten eleven is, is similar. These things were written down to instruct us on whom the end of the ages has come. I can imagine Stanley is here still channeling him. You can tell me if this is right. I can imagine Stanley saying, yes, the last part on whom the end of the ages have come. But I want to say the first part, written down to instruct us. But here's the point, whether it's Strawn emphasizing the first part of the verse or Stanley emphasizing the second part of the verse, the Bible has both parts in the verse. So the, the Bible has to be kind of held together. John Don, the great Anglican divine, said, out of two testaments grow one scripture. And let's talk about Acts 15 for a second. Let's you go there. Let's go there for a second. Because uh, this whole thing began with a sermon on Acts 15. So they do. They think about this, and they write this letter. This is the Jerusalem Council of the Apostles. They, they think things through. It's about the problem of the Gentiles. How's it going to get figured in and, and figured out? And they, they say, so it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, this is verse 28, to impose on you no further burden than these essentials, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. All right. So what do you got? Okay. No more circumcision, even though Paul circumcises Timothy. Never mind. Don't look over there. Um, and, uh, you know, then you've got uh, don't do all these extra things, you know, whatever these ritual things are that, that Stanley wants to throw out the ceremonial and civil law. Uh, but he even wants to throw out the moral law of the old Testament. Um, even though Paul continues to wrestle with this and, and talk positively about the law, not just negatively in, in Romans. Um, but here in Acts 15, don't eat food that is in sacrifice to idols and from blood and from fornication and wood strangle. What, what are those rules? Those are coming from the Old Testament, right? I mean, the avoidance of idols, that's the first commandment, you know? That's just the first commandment, and it's all the way down and all the way through the, the Old Testament. And, and to go to the Decalogue for a minute, which, which Andy thinks is not really that important, no, none, no less a figure than Martin Luther said, if you know the Ten Commandments, you're qualified to sit in judgment on everything in the world. If you know the Ten Commandments, and and Luther was kind of down on on law, right? Yeah, right. absolutely. <laughs> he has a reputation for that, you know. He has a reputation for that, but not about the Ten Commandments. And then when he and ultimately for Luther, it comes down to the First Commandment. If you get that right, everything else falls into place. What about avoiding blood? Well, it comes from Genesis, for heaven's sake, right? And Leviticus, 
on top of it, right? The the blood is the life. Mm-hmm. And then from fornication, you get all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, wisdom statements about right living and good living in the Old Testament. So this is not an unhitching from the Old Testament at all. It's an unhitching from certain things. You could say it's an unhitching from kashrut laws, dietary legislation. <clears throat> but that's, that's you know, that's maybe to be expected among, <clears throat> among Gentiles. But the rest, hmm, hard to say that it's a complete unhitching. Channeling Andy Stanley. I concede your point, Brent. I renounce, I renounce I renounce my works and will now instead tell people to read um, read the Old Testament is dying. So, it, it, Brent, this is I'm going to give you like the the opportunity now. So we have the diagnosis, we have the sickness, we have the problems. Doctor, physician, heal thyself. No, uh, give us some what's some medicine, man? What can we do other than go like, well, it's dying? Like we want to do. I want to do more than hospice care for you know the Old Testament right. and the Christian faith. Right. <clears throat> yeah, you're right. And I I joke a lot about my book that, you know, I'm pretty sure I can get it dead or show that it's dead. It's harder to get it back to life. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the crash cart? Claire! Um, well, it's not, it's it's actually at the end of the day in, in the book, it's not rocket science or brain surgery. Um, the way to save the Old Testament is by regular and intentional positive practice at and in formative moments in Christian experience and education. Um, it just comes down to that. I, I use the, uh, an analogy in the book of, uh, of the Bible, not just the Old Testament, the Bible as a whole, being like a language. And if that's true, you know, a couple things follow. One is which is that languages can be learned well and spoken fluently, or they can be forgotten uh, spoken poorly, um, with thick accents, you know, that are not native and eventually die out altogether. Um, to speak a language, um, fluently takes a lot of time, you know, to learn a new language takes time, discipline. Um, you need language immersion, you need input and output. You know, you need someone teaching you about French and you need to go to the French lab and practice speaking it. Um, you might need to go over and spend a semester in France to get fully fluent or longer, right? Even longer for very difficult languages. And the most difficult languages are the most ancient languages in the human um, repertoire. Analogously, the Bible would be like one of these ancient languages, which means it's extra hard to master. It's a big book, you know, and it's complicated and it has real tensions in it. I don't want to ignore that. There, there are elements of marked, strong discontinuity between the Testaments. Those cannot be ignored, but they can also be ignored along with the the moments of profound continuity. And that latter bit is what what Stanley's missing in my judgment. So what we need is, is, is more exposure to the Old Testament, positive exposure, so I, I often quote from Ellen Davis, uh, Duke Divinity School, about um, the best way to preach the Old Testament or to think about preaching the Old Testament or to th- even think about getting a- addressed by the Old Testament, spoken to by it. Is She says, uh, we need to treat the Old Testament as an urgent speaking presence, exercising salutary pressure in our lives. I, I love that phrase. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's how Christians think about the New Testament. And if they think about that for the New Testament, they can think about that way 
for the Old Testament too. And in fact, that's what Christians have been doing for thousands of years. And not just with the Psalms, and not just with the Proverbs, but with the whole kit and caboodle. Even, even Leviticus, wow. and even Joshua. As problematic as those are with their priestly law on the one hand and their violence on the other, they have been speaking to Christians with that urgent speaking presence, exercising salutary pressure, not negative pressure. Because other great interpreters would tell us, you know, hey, look, if your interpretation ends up in going out and killing people, you got the wrong Bible. And how do I know? Because I've read the whole thing, you know, um, and because of the habits and uh, responsibilities and really requirements that are imposed upon us when we read the whole thing. We have not been given Joshua alone. We've been given Joshua and all the rest of the books. And so these early church writers, what they do so amazingly and deftly, dexterously, because they're fluent language learners and users, people like Tertullian, is they show how, well, Joshua doesn't mean, or at least doesn't only mean, going out and killing Canaanites. It means more than that, which means it means less than that. John Cashin said, for instance, the seven nations mighty and more numerous than you that you have to displace in the in the land of Canaan when Israel goes in. These aren't just the Gergashites and the Jebusites and all the other ites. These are, he says, the seven deadly sins. You know? Now, why does he say that? In part, because there's no more Gergashites around. And yet the scriptures still mean something and must mean something. And so, what do you know? There's a connection between that sevenfold number of nations living in the promised land, keeping Israel from its communion with God in that land. And that's remarkably similar to the seven deadly sins that keep us out of God's presence and living in full plenitude with God as well. So we got to have positive exposure to the Old Testament appreciative exposure to it. And we have to realize constantly how these things go together. They're not antithetical, but synthetic in some profound ways. So the term I use in the book is, is bothness. Bothness means that the problems that live in the Old Testament also live in the New Testament. And the good juicy stuff, all the goodies that live in the New Testament, they live in the Old Testament too. And the way to proceed is to proceed together. Oh, that's a good a good word, a delightful word. Uh, it makes me think of a couple of things. One, I think when you're talking about um, particularly how the church fathers interpreted uh, not just the, I mean, you know, the entire Bible, but but also uh, the Old Testament in particular, is that modern biblical interpretation has kind of, in many ways, cut itself off um, from these more ancient uh, reading strategies and and her- hermeneutical approaches. I think to our you know, to our, our detriment, there was this fear of, of running off into flits of fancy and making it say whatever you wanted to say, but, um, but sort of a, that way of reading that you saw, whatever the four senses of, of scripture that you saw in the, in the patristic period, um, and continuing on that, that, that I think recovering a way of understanding and how we are to read and interpret scripture, um, in, in, kind of a continuity with how the church has been reading it for centuries and centuries and centuries would be a salutary thing for um, people who are responsible for preaching and, and teaching and uh, leading people in how to study scripture. You know, that could be, a, a I think, a really salutary approach. Um, it also yes. made me, you know, and as I, Andy, you know, I'm channeling Andy Stanley again, simple communication, you know, like 
I want to help people. Um, one of my, um, one of the guys who's coached me a lot in ministry says, you know, when you're preaching, he's like, it's good to, you know, it's good to be, you know, high flights of rhetoric and of thought, but he's like, you also need to make sure you put the cookies down where people can reach them. So, <laughs> um, so use it or lose it. But, you know, good <laughs> teachers, um, good teachers, let's, let's take an introductory calculus per, uh, per, professor who is a, a full professor at MIT. I mean, they know a little bit more than introductory calculus, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, sure, they make calculus available and accessible and understandable to their first year students in calculus, but they know more than that. And when their students are ready, they take them there. Um, so this is where, you know, the exposure not only for the for for Christians generally, but particularly for those in 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 charge of, of leadership in some way, is so important. And you know, the language fluency is a lifetime project. So that's a that's a sobering thing. It's also a kind of a graceful thing. If we don't know everything right now, it's all right. You know, we're working on it. And another good word is that teaching is a great way of learning especially a language. And so those of us who do teach or preach or, or lead a, a class or a youth group or something, what a great privilege we have because we are tasked with that kind of, of responsibility. And scripture is full of, of words of warning to people like us. Um, but it's also what a gift because it forces us to know the material even better. And when we do, again, we, we realize that what is so frequently bandied about is just a real bad short-sighted and just thin view of scripture as a whole um so for instance and 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 we know once we know that we can't let it pass even when we're trying to be um you know communicative to people who are novices so for instance you know there's a there's a line in in a couple of these things i've read that where where Stanley says, you know, and it's kind of a rhetorical flair. I get it. I've done it, you know, preacher's license. But, you know, he says, well, you know, you, you have you have to sacrifice in the Old Testament to stay on speaking terms with God. This is just not true. You know, it's just not true of the Old Testament. Um, it doesn't say that. <laughs> and in fact, there's all kinds of texts that talk about in the Old Testament, not the New Testament, in the Old Testament that say sacrifice is only part of the deal, and push comes to shove, it's not the most important thing. To obey is better than sacrifice, is what Samuel says to Saul, right? That's in Samuel. It's not in Jesus, and it's not in the Gospel of John. It's in Samuel. Psalms talk about this. The prophets, as well, are quite clear that sacrifice means nothing without the right heart attitude. That's in the Old Testament. And so, Stanley knows better. If he doesn't, he should know better. And if he does know better, I'm assuming he does, he shouldn't let that sort of thing pass in his rhetoric, even if he's speaking to quote-unquote baby Christians, because it's not accurate. When you're teaching a child language and they hit an irregular verb, it's so cute when they mispronounce it. You know, I run around at school today, mama. (laughs) You know, it's cute for a minute, and it's really sad when our kids stop miss miss you know uh, speaking because it's so darn cute. But good mamas and daddies and grandparents and whatever say you ran you ran around at school today, and they correct it. You know, and certainly they don't say to their child, "Did you run around a lot?" <laughs> <laughs> so, so these these things are 
are in the Old Testament. You know, these great texts of faith, they live everywhere, but they're, they're in the Psalms. I mean, who doesn't like Psalm 100? For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, his faithfulness endures from age to age. Or Psalm 11, the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, the upright will see his face, you know. Or Isaiah 54, where God promises to never get mad at Israel again. And even, the, for heaven's sake, the language of New Covenant comes from Jeremiah, right? Or New Testament comes from Jeremiah. These, these things, the goodies live in the Old Testament as much as the New Testament. And the reason why people don't know that is because preachers, including sometimes very famous ones with mega churches and lots of satellite campuses, are telling them the Old Testament's not worth their while. So a, uh, a stark and stern reminder for folks like me, who, you know, this is my responsibility to, uh, you know, lead my, uh, the folks who are part of the congregation in, you know, knowing God and loving him and knowing how to serve him. And that comes from uh, having God's word saturating uh, their lives and their imaginations and the whole of God's word, both testaments together. Uh, that was a beautiful, right. beautiful quote from John Donne. And so, uh, so Andy, or not, not Andy, you're Brent, um, Andy Stanley's on the line. Andy, what do you have to say? Hey, welcome. <laughs> Sorry about that. What I just said. <laughs> best of ways. No, but uh, 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 so, and you also gave me a great Halloween costume idea, uh, Brent, for this year. Uh, Marcion's ghost. I'm going as Marcion's ghost. You should ghost. be Marcion's ghost. Just carry around a New Testament only Bible. <laughs> and I'll I'll be even ripping pages from the other uh, from Matthew, Mark, and uh, John. Carry just a little bit of Luke. And then you could also you could on the front side of your your uh, costume you could say Marcy, and on the back side you could have Thomas Jefferson and his scissors because that's the similar kind of thing, isn't it? It sure is. Sounds like it. Oh wow. Well, Brent, thank you so much for uh, for your wisdom, for your insight, uh, for your time. This has really been, uh, I mean, a true joy for me, and I know it will be for um, our audience too. So, uh, thanks a lot. Uh, this is really, really, really rich stuff. So uh, this is definitely going to be a two-part episode. So I love it. Well, thanks so much for having me on. It's a great privilege and pleasure. And and again, I, I want to reiterate that um, my comments are pointed and strong as they probably have been, um, are really meant for the betterment of the Christian communion and, and, and for the sake of our dearly beloved, precious scriptures. Uh, those of us who are Christian, and particularly in the Protestant communion, you know, this is this is where it's at. I mean, right? That's where the heat and the light are. That's where the special revelation of God is. And uh, we ought to be very, very worried when we hear people, even popular, gifted speakers, tell us that that large swaths of it, Old Testament or New Testament, are just not important anymore. Um, and I, I think that it's uh, it's deeply disturbing. And and again wrong I, one last comment about this too if i can and that's oh, the, a comment that uh stanley makes about the ten commandments that you know that they weren't meant for gentiles and you know we weren't in the old covenant and all the rest and here too a, a thorough kind of saturation i love that word you use saturation in the in the bible shows us i mean if we if we have if we read around in it that man i mean god seems quite interested in the nations from the get-go and is quite um, at pains to get some information to them. If that's already in the opening chapters of Genesis, but particularly Genesis 12, where 
through Abraham all the families of the earth, not just his descendants, all families, a big term, of the earth, an even bigger term, will be blessed by you or through you. Isaiah 2, Micah 4, all nations will stream to Zion to hear the word of the Lord. Or Zechariah, people will cling on to the to the Jews and say, take us because with you. We've heard God is with you. Or Psalm 87 or Isaiah 19, where God, you know, cares about e Egyptians and calls Assyria and Egypt by the pet names that he normally reserves only for Israel. Or Romans 9 through 11, for heaven's sake, where God, where, uh, where, where, where God grafts us in to the tree that is Israel, according to Paul. So, you know, to, to talk as if these are, it's a Gentile thing in the New Testament and it's a Jewish thing in the Old Testament, this is, you know, wrong on the one hand. It also has bad ramifications that we have to worry about, ramifications at the ethical level and not just the theological level. So my goal would be that for all Christians to be encouraged that this scripture, this precious scripture given to us, all of it, the full counsel of God is what we've been given and, and given in the Spirit's wisdom. And that deserves our most careful, painstaking attention. Wow, that's a good last word. Hey, thanks I love for it. Me. Oh, Brent, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Wow. Well done, distinguished professor. Now you know why he's distinguished. You have distinguished yourself, sir. <laughs> Uh, that's a lot to digest. I suspect people will be listening to this episode. I don't know if this has multiple ever happened times. before multiple times. And Gout. what does that say about us? <laughs> Gout. We uh, need uh, we need more uh, we need more guests. Is that what it says? You know, I, I think know. we have. A, I think when we get a when when there's a when you have a great opportunity, we should we should seize it. Should we ever get just sort of a mediocre guest, just to make ourselves look a little, I mean, just to like, elevate Why did they have standards? that guy on? Jeez. <laughs> I can think of a few. And then people will write in and go like, just, you know what? You guys are fine. Let's just stick with you. And then we'll feel better. And then we'll get another <laughs> distinguished guest and we'll start the, the, the roller coaster ride over again. My, uh, my, my, my boss at the church I worked at in California said, you know, he's like, the beautiful thing about guest preachers, he's like... He's like, you really can't go wrong. He's like, if they're really good, your congregation goes like, wow, I can't believe my pastor like knows someone who's that good and they could bring him in. Yeah. And he's like, if they're really bad, they go, oh man, I can't wait till you know the pastor is back here next week preaching again. Yeah. So he's like, you can't. He's like, you can't lose in these situations. And, and, and we did that. not lose with that rich discussion. We won. We are all winners. So thank you, Brent, for, um, man, that was just so, so good. We hope that you enjoyed it. We hope that that is uh, meaty stuff for you to think about. And what I also love, too, is, you know, like, this is speaking, I think this is a perfect example of speaking the truth in love. This is not some anti-Andy Stanley, you know, podcast or screed, but it's just saying when we're, we're teaching and we're saying things and we're making strong, you know, when someone as prominent um, and influential as Andy Stanley is making these strong claims, um, the loving thing to do is to try to go, well, to go listen, these are very, very strong claims about something that is very important and sacred. And so uh, we want to make sure that we are, are thinking as sharply and as clearly and as faithfully as we can about this. It's not the loving thing to be nice and go, well, you know, he's trying to, he's really trying and, you know. Yeah. If these are the things that matter, then they're, they're worth talking about in, in such depth and confronting head on. And not just pretending they didn't happen or or just going, oh, he's neat. He's got his own perspective. Or like, I no. think even obliquely going, there's someone out there saying these things. You know what I mean? That's sort of like a that Minnesota passive-aggressive way. I mean, not that yes. I don't champion that in some instances. But, uh, you know, 
this is, I think, a really beautiful example of um, of the the iron sharpening iron, as it says in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, yes. So there you go. This is uh, season four. We start out with uh, very special episodes, two parters, <laughs> uh, which is the network we, loves it. Yeah, exactly. But we'll be back with I don't know. I don't want to call them regular episodes. They're all they're all special to us. <laughs> It's like your children. How do you say who your favorite is? Right. But we'll be back. Once again, I am Michael J. Nelson. I'm David Berkey. Sorry. He just walked away from the mic. He is David Berkey. (laughs) And we'll be back with another Like Trees Walking. Well, I woke up in the morning, found you gone. And I stood there wondering what the hell had gone wrong. I wonder if I'll ever find my way. Now I sit alone and watch the clock and count the days. Hey, I wanna know.